from the host that brought you to Coding Westworld. And Westworld the Recapables. Comes the Ringer Prestige TV podcast on Westworld. I'm Joanna Robinson. I'm Danny Heifetz. And I'm David Shoemaker. Welcome to Westworld Season 4 and the Prestige TV podcast feed, where we're going to break down every episode of Westworld Season 4. Every Monday, the day after the show comes out on the Prestige TV podcast feed. Wherever you get your podcasts, but get them on Spotify. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com slash FYC. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. All right, it is Wednesday, June 29th, and we've got a treat today on the town. We've got Jason Blum, the super producer of horror movies and other types of movies, television shows. He is the founder and CEO of Blumhouse, and he had a hit this past weekend with The Black Phone, which grossed $23 million. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but mostly why I wanted to have Jason on the show is he wrote an interesting op-ed in the New York Times about the changing economics of movies and how that impacts the people who make them. So we're going to get into that with Jason Blum. He's great, one of the few truly candid people in the movie business, started his career at Miramax, launched Blumhouse, probably best known initially for Paranormal Activity, but has had a hit ratio that is very enviable. So we're going to get into all of that with Jason Blum. From Puck and the Ringer, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Jason Blum, super producer. Super producer? Do you go by super producer now? No, I exclusively go by Uber <laughs> super producer. No. Is that on the business card? No, I go by... No, no. Plain old producer is just fine with me, my friend. Okay. Uh, Jason is the producer of every horror movie you like, including this past weekend's number two movie? Number three, but it made $23 million in its opening weekend, The Black Phone. Uh, which is a big win for a movie that costs what sixteen million? Yeah, sixteen. But the other movies cost about six hundred million. So <laughs> yes. uh, you know, it's, it's hardly a level playing field, right? And we will talk about that. We will talk about that on this pod. I wanted to have Jason on because, in addition to being a smart guy and and really kind of revolutionizing and reinventing the low budget movie business, uh, he wrote an interesting op ed for the New York Times a couple months ago that delves into an issue that I write about a lot at Puck and I think is pretty much the dominating issue from the talent perspective in Hollywood these days, which is how are people getting paid? And are people getting paid what they should be getting paid, given that the economics of the entertainment business have completely changed over the past 10 to 15 years? We've gone from a business that was dominated, especially in movies, by the theatrical box office to a move to a business that is now dominated by whether you can build up your streaming service and your streaming company where your subscribers 
are all that matter. And that's really changed the economics of Hollywood. And it's been driven by Netflix, which came in and upended decades of paying talent a certain way for movies where the talent was incentivized. They made a certain fee up front and they would get a bonus or a participation in the profits if that movie did well. Now, for the most part in streaming, you get your fee and it's usually a bit larger than your normal fee, but then you don't participate on the back end. And Jason wrote an interesting op-ed about this. Why did you do this? Because your, your argument was essentially that that model is not just bad financially, but it's also bad creatively. Well, let me uh, let me back up a second. You've said mm -hmm. a few very controversial things. Um, <laughs> for, the first the first thing is Hollywood people bitching about how much they get paid. That the, the thought of that makes me want to vomit. So let let's let's reframe that a little bit. Which is sure. everyone in Hollywood, executive writer, producer, we all make too much money. We have this amazing job. We make so we get to have so much fun, and everyone is paid too much money. However, if we take the assumption that the pie representing all the capital in Hollywood. Let's start with it's way fucking too big, but it is what it is. So the pie is not shrinking, right? The pie is either staying the same or getting bigger. Then it becomes, how is that too big pie divided up? And that is something that I am, I am very, very, very passionate about because I think like my op-ed said, I don't like the way it's being divided up. And then, and the way it's being divided up is just as you said, which is if you're doing a movie on streaming now, this conversation is very different now than it was two months ago, which is one of the really fun things about Hollywood is that it changes so quickly. Two or three months ago, you know, people were saying theatrical is going away or it's just going to be a shadow of what it once was. And as of as of Top Gun, you know, that doesn't look like it's going to be the case, like it's going to go back to pre-pandemic levels or 10 percent short of pre-pandemic levels or even 15 percent short. That's a big business still. and. For the most part, the theatrical financial model is the model that I believe in more, not, not completely, but more so, or at least you have the opportunity as an artist or a creator to take less upfront and participate in the financial success of what you've made. And what I, what I revere at is the notion of um, not being able to participate, which goes along with making more upfront. I'd rather make a lot less upfront and do much better if what I made was seen by a bunch of people and not make anything more if it didn't work. And I really like that for creative reasons as opposed to business reasons. Now, obviously, I built a business on that model and done very well from that model. But that is, I actually like it because I, I like having aligned interest. So I like being in the trenches with my financier and not having asked them to spend a lot of money because it gives me much more confidence to push my point of view because I'm not being paid unless my thing works. If I'm getting $3 million up front and my financier platform distributor, whatever you call them, is out a hundred million bucks. And now we're sitting in the room talking about the script. For me, it's morally objectionable for me to be arguing with the poor person sitting behind the desk who's $100 million behind the eight ball, and I've already made my money. I don't have any conviction because I feel I've already, I, there's nothing, it doesn't, it, it feels, it actually, it does. It feels like morally, ethically wrong to me. If I haven't been paid and they're paying infinitely less for what we are all making together, and I'm only going to be paid if my thing works, I feel empowered to push for either my point of view or more more in the in our case for my director's point of view I can get behind my director and I can say hey 
I'm not making money. My director's not making any money. My actors aren't making money. So we're going to do it this way. And I don't feel good about doing that if we've all been paid first. And it's interesting. You made that argument because you've obviously had tons of success with this model. Get Out, you made for $4.5 million and made $250 million worldwide. Whiplash, another one, $3.3 million, And it got three Oscar nominees. Oh, no, won three Oscars. Wow, it Whiplash won, won yeah. three Oscars? Oh, yeah, J.K. JK Simmons. Five nominations. Yeah. And then, you know, something like The Invisible Man. The horror model works really well for this. Made for seven, earned more than 140. I mean, this this is interesting because you're saying essentially that the Netflix model for movies produces movies that are don't have as good a chance to be good because the creators are not aligned. Well, you're saying that. I would say this. I'm saying that. I would say, I would say the streaming model. It's not everyone. Everyone's doing it, not just Netflix. Right. Everybody, right. every streamer does it. The streaming model, it is more challenging with the model used by all the streamers to have a better ratio of quality television shows and movies. We've had plenty of misses. There's no perfect, thank God, the reason the business is so fun and interesting. There is no formula. There is no algorithm. There is no data you can use to make great shows and movies every time out of the gate. It's impossible. So all you're looking at is how often you can do it. And I think, I don't think, you can do it more often if your artists and creators are riding along with you financially, you you definitely can do it more often than you can if everyone's been paid up front. There's no question about it. And it's interesting because you use the analogy to the tech industry where people are given options. And if you're working 24 hours a day for three years to try to build a company, you know that it's not just your X amount salary. It's that the upside there, if you work your ass off, is there. Yeah, I mean, I mean that, that that's what's so that, that's what's so ironic to me is all the streamers are even if they're owned by traditional media companies, there you have to have great tech to have a great streamer. Netflix has the best tech. Their experience is 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 by far they're ahead of everybody else. And there's a great tradition in tech of paying with equity. You know, and and so why not treat your your artists the same way you do your employees? That was that's such a, such a mystery to me. Well, we know why they do it. They want to control. And when you don't have to sell advertising and television, and if you don't have a theatrical model that generates box office, which is independently reported, you can pay people up front and then control the entire asset in perpetuity. So in 30 years, assuming Netflix is still here, they're going to get all the value from this. Yes. Again, I'd like to say streamers, not Netflix. But assuming, I just think the Netflix model, it's, the, it's all the streamers at this point. Assuming all the streamers do, you're right. They like to do it to keep the data, but the data doesn't do them any good. If, it, if the data was helpful, then the shows and movies that out of the streamers would be spectacular. And they're not. Right. There are some of them. I shouldn't say that. I watch your, your movies, of course. I'm watching the second second season of uh, Physical right now on Apple, which I mm -hmm. think is a great show. I just started watching it, and I watch a ton of uh, movies and shows on streaming, a ton. But the amount of money they spend to get a good show is so much greater than a traditional movie studio. And given all the data and all the information, everything else, you know, technically that shouldn't happen. It doesn't happen, I think, again because of because of sharing. And obviously, this has helped your model because it enables you to make movies for pretty cheap. I mean, the fact that you're doing movies for less than $10 million that can get up to tens of millions. Now, they don't always work. But people like Ethan Hawke, who have done multiple movies for you, they end up making a lot of money. 
Yeah, but the making movies cheap is that that's 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 a different argument, but it fits into the same window, which is if you're making a movie now going to the studios, not forget forget streaming for a second. If you're making a movie for a studio that's $150 million, it's irresponsible not to hit all these development checkboxes you have to hit. You can't make a movie for $150 million and not think about the sequel. You can't make a movie for $150 million and, and kill the, and have a horrible, sad ending, right? There are just all these things that you just can't do. If you make a movie for 10 million bucks, you can pretty much do anything. If the script is good, you could try all sorts of new stuff because, um, because you're, there's not that much capital at risk. So if it doesn't really work out, you're either not going to lose or you're not going to lose very much. You know, I, I just watched... Ethan Hawke, my friend, my great friend, Ethan, did this um, this TED talk about creativity. It's 10 minutes long. It went kind of viral. I encourage everyone to see it. It's about how if you're thinking about the results of whatever you make, a song you write, a painting you paint, a book you write, a movie, a TV show, if you're thinking about the results while you're doing it, you're dead in the water. That you must make something from your heart and make something free of all the focus that's going to come on you and you're going to, you're going to fail or not fail. And you can't think about that. What he's suggesting you do is not possible. If you're making super, super expensive shows or movies, if you're making really inexpensive ones. You can. And that's, what's so fun about low budget. It's, it's great that it's profitable and, and, you know, and I, money is important to the company. If we didn't make a lot of money, we couldn't keep going, but more fun than the profitability is the fact that creatively it's very satisfying to be able to take risks, which you can do when you don't spend a lot of capital. So you have strong feelings about this, but you are not dogmatic. I mean, you've taken the streaming money. I mean, you did this enormous deal for the Exorcist movies where Universal is paying, what is it, 300, 300 million for three Exorcist movies that will initially debut in theaters and then go to streaming. So you're not, you recognize that this is the playing field. You just- 400. 400, sorry. You recognize 400 for three Exorcist movies, which is a lot of money, and they're paying that up front because that's the model they want. And you know this is kind of the playing field we're at. Do you think that the slowdown in streaming numbers that we've experienced over the past three to six months, the less, you know, the, the meltdown on the stock market of Netflix and some of the others, do you think that's going to change their approach to this at all? I don't think in terms, yes, it's definitely going to change our approach for sure, but it's a hit driven business. So if there's something that they all believe is a hit, I think where it's going to, the approach is going to change is the filler shows in movies, the, 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 the shows in movies by the, by the yard, uh, which 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 the streamers all felt compelled to do. I think that's not going to continue. But I think there's still going to be when they when everyone feels there's something that's going to hit and connect in a major way. I don't think that's going to change so much. And so sure, the fat, they're going to trim the, the fat. Idea, yeah, the idea, the idea. I mean, people say, and I, the first to admit, like it's like it's like I think that I think rich people should pay more taxes, but I'm not just going to pay more tax because. Because I make a lot of money, like I think everyone should pay more time. But I'm not going to fight against a system that that we've inherited. When movies went from black and white to color, I'm not going to continue to make black and white TVs, black and white movies, even if I like them better. You got to adapt with the times, but that doesn't mean you have to agree with the times. So you do think that the content spend at places like Netflix and the others will come down a little from what it is. I do, and other people don't. Other very mm -hmm. sophisticated people, more sophisticated than me, 
think that the spend, the aggregate spend on content across the board is going to remain at, at the pre-stock market crash levels or stock market dip, whatever we're calling it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I find that very hard to, to imagine. I think that, that profitability as, is going to be rewarded more than subscription growth and all these other things that were rewarded by, the, by, the, by Wall Street. And if profitability is going to become more important, people are going to spend less money on shows and movies. I just think that, I, I think that they will. But I, I'm kind of in the minority on that. Do you think that the ad tier at Netflix will um, will cause them to be a little bit more transparent with some of the data as to who's watching what, or will they just find another way to? No, 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 no. Won't call. They they can't. They, it's impossible not to be more transparent. You're selling advertising to Budweiser. Budweiser's got to see how many know how many people watch their show. You can't sell advertising without being more transparent. So there's no way it, they won't be. They have to be. But they can do NDAs with some of the ad buyers. And like, do you think you as a producer will get to see more data because of the ad tier? Do I think eventually all streamers will share the results of their movies and shows? Yes, I do. It might be 10 years, but yes, I do. I don't think I don't think the idea of I'm going to buy you out and not tell you anything long, long term. Uh, it can work a little bit here and there, but for the majority of the industry to run like that, I, I don't, I don't think it can work that way. Maybe wishful thinking. Certainly it's, I hope it doesn't, but I, I'm, 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 I'm an optimist. So I think it won't. Hmm. And the talent will push that. Selling advertising will push it. The talent will push it. Yeah. Yeah. So like on a movie, like our father, which is a great documentary, you, your company produced uh, creepy fertility doctor documentary. That's a Netflix project. Do you see zero data as to who's watched that? I noticed it was in the top 10 when I watched it. But like, other than that, do you get I, any I get, kind no, of data? I get no more data than the consumer gets from looking at those top 10? Nothing, no, nothing, nothing. That's got to be frustrating. It's monumentally, extraordinarily frustrating, especially because on a documentary, we also don't get paid. So it's, it's, it's really right. annoying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that is to me, just the defining issue of this time is the, the value transfer there. Yeah. And the, uh, the opening of it's just, and forgetting about money and economic and all this stuff, it's just less fun, right? Like at the opening, I tweeted earlier in, in the last, the beginning of last week, I think we tweeted like well, opening movies is so fun. Like, yeah. It also, by the way, if your movie's tracking and looking like it's going to open, it's really fun. We've had plenty that don't look like that that doesn't happen, then it's a lot less fun. But there is this emotional journey that I'm on with Scott and I'm on with Ethan and I'm on with the company, employees of the company, and I'm on with Universal and the specific employee. And all these, there are 50 different conversations every day leading up and more and more and more as the open a movie. And we, there's a, it's really exciting and it's really, really fun. And, um, and that, that has nothing to do with business or anything else, but it's certainly, I miss that. You know, when you don't have it, you don't have, you don't, when, when it's gone, you, you really appreciate it because it's been gone for a while because of uh, COVID. So I really, really appreciated it on this last movie. Also, it helped that Scott and Ethan made a terrific movie. So it worked at the box office. And do you care when they come to you and say, you know, hey, something like Firestarter, we want to put it on Peacock. Is it just a check or do you have a conversation about whether that's the right thing for that movie? Oh no, you have to have a long conversation about is it the right thing? You have to have a and it's not just me. I got the, the director and the my part producing partners and everything else. No, no, no. And 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 Stephen King. I mean, no, no, no. It's it's not just a a switch that the, you switch. Um, they made the decision, and I thought the decision was the right decision. People will say that okay, yeah, Jason 
is all for profit participation, but that's because he's getting outbid for these projects by streamers that pay more. So doesn't this just serve your model and not the overall talent business where people might want to get paid more upfront? You mean there are some people who would rather get paid upfront than work for back end? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The, uh, like, the, the, the prices for talent have gone up so much that you know your model, you really have to commit to that. Most of the people who want to work more for more upfront, I hate to say this, but it's true, is representation. The agency business, the manager business, they have no, there's no, the client retention is unclear. And all those, those companies are, are driven for under, not because anyone's bad, but they're much more focused on quarters and end of year bonus and immediate upfront. So that is a great help to the streamers and artists artists are good artists if they're focusing on making art and not thinking about their comp and they rely on their representatives to tell them what is good and what isn't good and unfortunately and there's no no way to solve this but the interests are not completely aligned between the agent lawyer business manager around the artist they all work on commission yeah, and the artist, no, 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 but you could, then they would say, well, we commission the short, they commission up front and they commission the back end. They commission both. It's not that they work on commission. It's that they're much more focused on short-term gains as opposed to future, as opposed to future earnings. Now, obviously there are exceptions to this. Someone's trying to buy a house. Any any artist who's working, who who needs money quickly, of course, there's that option. I think. I think. I think most of the time, and we do this too. If if someone is really, really focused on getting money up front, we'll pay them up front, and we'll own their back end. We we've done that too. But if you don't need money quickly as an artist, or if you don't want to roll the dice on your own work, you know that's the other question. If you want, to, if you're doing something that's that's commercially in your mind, commercially not that viable. You want to get paid up front because you don't think it has a back end. But that goes back to my other point, right? Um, um, but that's a long answer to your short question. No, it's a good answer, though. All right, let's do some producer lightning round here. Let's do it. Where I'll ask quick questions, quick answers, and we'll go through a bunch of questions here. All right, first one. Congress abolishes all intellectual property laws. What is the IP that you would most like to get your hands on first? I'd like to do Friday the 13th. Oh, right. You've tried for years. Yeah, I have. And what's the status there? Well, it's caught up in a lot of litigation. And then even if it weren't in litigation, you know, some people want me to do it. Some people don't. Hmm. Interesting. What about that property? You love Jason? Jason. It's, he's my, it's my namesake. <laughs> All right. What's the one book to read if you want to make it in Hollywood? Uh, what makes Sammy run? For sure. Interesting. Would you put Johnny Depp or Amber Heard or both in one of your movies? I would put Amber Heard in a movie. Interesting. At this point in your career, what would you rather have that you don't already have? An Oscar or a billion dollar grocer? <laughs> an Oscar. An Oscar. How close do you think you got for Get Out? Everyone I talked to that year said they voted for it. And then boom, Shape of Water wins. I think we got within single digit votes. I really do. I really do. And if we could go back in time and do the vote again, we would have won. 
Interesting. So you were just elected to the Board of Governors of the Academy. Congratulations. When will we finally get a category that honors these so-called popcorn movies or popular movies? Well, this may be very, very controversial. I don't think I think that's a dumb category. The popcorn, the, the category that honors the popcorn movies is the financial category. You, you made the most money at the box office. That's that's the uh, winner of the popcorn movie who made the most money. The whole point of the Academy, in my view, is it provides a great counterbalance to the commercial pressures f- felt by all the platforms, all the studios, all the financiers. It's a counterweight to that. So those guys are all, this This. This a little bit contradicts what I said at the top of the podcast, but, but there's so much pressure to make stuff that lots of people see. And the Academy provides a, a reward for something else. It's not just about, it's the exact opposite of getting the most people to see it. So I think a popcorn award for the Academy Awards is, is, uh, is, is not a good idea. Interesting. You heard it here first. No, that, listen, that's, uh, that's, I, I've heard that from many people. I'm not quite sure what I think about that, but I do think the Oscars needs to come up with a way to get more popular movies onto the show. No, I think the Oscars needs to come up with a way to be more engaging, for sure. That too. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, if I had the answer to do that, uh, I would, I would sh- happily share it. I don't have the answer, but I, but I hope to help. Would you vote for Top Gun Maverick? No, yours not over. True. But given if there's nothing else that comes about that is, you know, blowing you away, what, do you think that's the kind of movie that should get a best picture nomination? No, no, I actually don't. Hmm. I might, that's not saying I wouldn't vote for it. I might vote for it, but no, I, I actually don't. The Oscars, I mean, the Oscars can't just be about, this is going to get me kicked off the board of governors. (laughs) The Oscars can't be just about the ratings. I mean, they have to be about, they, 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 they obviously, the ratings are very important, but they can't just, the Oscars exist to counterbalance ratings and money and commerce. They can't, the Oscars can't be about ratings, money and commerce. They have to be about something more, but do they have to be more relevant? Absolutely. Do I want... 10-year-old kid to feel the same way I did, which is the Oscars are the most important thing in the world. And one day, maybe I'll win one of those. Absolutely. Do I think they they should be um, a much better tool to make movies more relevant in the culture? Absolutely. Do I think they should be about ratings, money, and uh, popularity? No, I do not. Okay. You do make low-budget movies. Why do you not make low-budget comedies? Why does nobody make low budget comedies these days uh, they don't work there are low first of all low budget comedy there's 500 hours of it on tv they're just series they're not movies but that's what m- so much i'm watching one right now physical you know what i mean it's it, that's mm-hmm. a version of a low budget comedy low-ish budget probably probably expensive show but compared to a, a 80 million dollar movie for movies there's one very simple answer horror movies are much better when the acting is simply great but there's not a big movie star. If there's a big movie star in a horror movie, it's hard ever to lose yourself and be scared for her or him because you're always looking at a movie star. Comedy is the opposite. If you pay $15 to go to the movies to go see a comedy, you want a really, really famous comedian starring in that movie. And um, and sadly, maybe after this podcast, though, that famous comedian will be worth, worth working for uh, back end. But sadly, up until this point, they make a lot of money and they make a lot of money up front. And therefore, you cannot make a low budget co- horror, low budget comedy movie. 
And you think that's a recent thing? Because we I was just listening to producer Craig is on the rewatchables and they were doing Project X, which came out 10 years ago. That is a movie with no stars that made $110 million off of a tiny, tiny budget. And I just wonder, like, where did those movies go? That's because Todd Phillips is a genius. There are exceptions. There, there, there. The Full Monty, if you go 30 years good boys, ago. Good Boys made money good recently. Boys. But if you count the number of big hit, low budget comedies in the last 30 years, I'd be shocked if you got off one hand. So that's why. If you count the, the, the number of low budget horror movies in the last 30 years, I'd be shocked if you weren't in triple digits. Right. So that, that's why. That's why. Are there any movie stars these days under 30? You know, I'm, I'm the wrong person to ask about that too. We don't, we, we have, we work with movie stars in our television company, but, but a lot less in our movie company. But that, by definition though, those aren't movie stars. You, you must look at this. Is there any under 30 actor that can open a movie? Zendaya, Chalamet, Tom Holland? I don't know. Jennifer Lawrence is not 30. She's, she's over 30, right? I think so. Yeah, I think so too. All right. You have one of the most valuable, prolific, independent companies in Hollywood. What would it take for you to sell it? Uh, it's for $1 trillion. Absolutely. <laughs> and so, no, sorry. You know what I mean? Is there a point where it's going to make more, more sense for you to sell? You know, that's a, it's a complicated question. I don't know. We have no plans on selling the company. I'm not interested in selling the company. I love what I do. I love practicing what I preach, you know, I own the company. I make all the big decisions for the company. So I would never say never, but I have no, no, no immediate plans, um, you know, no matter what the offer was, within reason. <laughs> Jason, we did a whole episode about A24 and whether that brand actually means anything to average consumers. And I think the consensus was that for a certain type of consumer, it does mean something. Do you think it's possible and is Blumhouse a brand for certain people? I think A24 is absolutely a brand on the coasts. I think it's a brand. If you ask interns uh, at the company at Blumhouse, you know, do they, they, they know an A24 movie. I think that brand is matters a lot in New York and Los Angeles. I think the Blumhouse brand is a much more meat and potatoes brand and it's known red state, blue state across the country. In fact, we're better and, and, and internationally too, it's a very strong brand in Korea. It's a very strong brand in, in Mexico, in South America. It's a, it's a strong brand in the UK. Um, and it's a strong brand across, for young people, for young people um, across the country. Um, but it's a much more, it's a much more, um, much less insider. It's a much more populist brand than, uh, than A24. That's how it's But you think your movies benefit from a box office bump simply with the, la the label on it? I know our movies benefit if they say, because they say Blumhouse. I know they benefit. How do you know that? Because we do movies where the branding is is hidden versus less hidden, and television shows where it's hidden versus less hidden. Um, you took a look at Amazon, the Blumhouse of Horrors, those movies without that, without being released under that moniker, those movies would not would not do what they do because of, because because there's a destination that is Blumhouse for the consumer. I just know it for a fact. Over the past six to 12 months, we've seen some pretty sky high valuations of media companies. What do you think as an independent owner of one of the companies that would be valued pretty high? What do you think of the valuation of these companies? I think the last several years, there's been a valuation of media companies similar 
to valuations in tech where profitability did not matter. The companies were valued on future, like magical thinking, future profits they could potentially make, subscriptions, you know, how much coverage Uber had or Lyft had, you know, the, all, so all these companies and media companies were no exception, were valued by other metrics. And I think, you know, the great reckoning of the past, uh, you know, of the past couple of months and the result of, of what's happened in the stock market is the companies that real EBITDA, old fashioned how you make money, which is I spent at the end of the year $10, I brought in $20, I made 10 bucks. Very, very simple. Nothing else, no bells and whistles. I think that's going to become much, much more important as these companies are valued. That's how I built Blumhouse. So I think we're incredibly well positioned for that because we have a PL and we have a very, very clear way that you can see how much we spent and how much we brought in. And to me, that's a much, I love that. It's a, it's a fair playing field and the other valuations used to drive me nuts. So, so, you're, uh, so you're saying you don't need a book club. I'm definitely not saying anything about, listen, I'm not saying anything <laughs> about that. And I, I think I, I'm not saying anything about anybody else. I would say Reese and yes, her. I was team, talking about Reese Witherspoon selling her company for a lot of money. Reese and her team did one of the great deals of the century. You know, I, 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 I look at that deal with nothing but envy. They did one of the great deals of the century and they deserve to be commended in every possible way. But like I said, I don't think I think I think future valuations are going to be done in a more traditional manner. Uh, all right. You are made the CEO of Netflix tomorrow. What's the first thing you do? Share. <laughs> all right. That's a good way to stop. Want to want to thank Jason Blum. Appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. All right. We are back with the call sheet. My daily prediction. Producer Craig, I've got a. Stranger Things prediction. The we got Ooh. the I know your favorite. The final two episodes are coming out this this weekend. Uh, they're basically movies. I mean, how long are these episodes? 90 minutes? They're currently they're about 75, 80 minutes, but the final two, I know the final, final episode is two and a half hours. That is insane. That like uh, that there should be a law against that. That is like that's like Elvis territory. Every year I convince myself, I'm like, ah, Stranger Things is coming back. It's going to be the same storyline over and over. And then I watch like two episodes and I'm completely back in. I'm very much enjoying it. I am out. I, they lost me after the second season. It's just, I can't do another monster. I can't do more of that. And now it's just like bloated. There's five different storylines. Not for me. But my prediction is that the Stranger Things 4 ultimate total of hours watched will dethrone Squid Game as Netflix's biggest season of TV ever. And here's why. Because we're, what we're looking at is, the, the record is currently at 1.65 billion hours over the first 28 days. Now, Stranger Things is not there. As of June 21st, it was only at 883 million hours, uh, but that's only over first 24 days. And the expectation is that it would get close with that first batch of episodes over 28 days, but not beat Squid Game. But the final two episodes are coming out. And I think that when you add in those two episodes, especially given how long they are, I think that ultimately the hours viewed on Stranger Things 4 will be higher 
than the hours viewed on Squid Game after the first 28 days. What do you think is more impressive? Uh, is it more impressive that Netflix got so many people to watch kind of a brand new out of nowhere oh, yeah. show like Squid Game or that people are coming back for a fourth season of a show? No, I think I think the Squid Game phenomenon is just something that is is only on Netflix. And I don't think that we're, we haven't seen it since. The fact that they got all those people around the world to watch a, for most of them, foreign language show. And at that scale, like, unbelievable stranger things is a much easier sell you know it's got the high production values and it's got the you know the nostalgia. the 80s spielberg ripoff vibes totally totally and you know, yeah you know it's also been around for five years now six years where you know this is a big event when these things come back it's much easier to bring people in for the sequel to something than for the original. So I, the, the, the Squid Game phenomenon is still the most impressive thing that Netflix has ever done, other than getting people to watch shows on the internet in 2013, nine years ago. Craig, do you think that the any of the Stranger Things actors will become actual stars beyond Stranger Things? With Euphoria, you can see a lot of it, right? You can see Zendaya and Sydney Sweeney and Jacob Elordi. With this show, I struggled, you know? It's so rooted in like, one, they, they're much younger. They started at such a younger age, so you didn't really know if they were going to be good actors, and I think some of them kind of aren't. They're also awkward looking. I hate to say it, but they kind of are. You know, Finn Wolfhard will always have Ghostbusters. You know, they're doing another one of those, and I feel like he's now got a franchise outside of Stranger Things. And Millie Bobby Brown has done other stuff, and I do think that she is talented. I think she's talented, too. I think she's a good actress. You know, I don't know. I think, like, there's a world where Joe Keery, the guy who plays Steve Harrington, goes on to do a couple more things. I also think David Harbour, I mean, he doesn't really count because he's not a kid, but he's a good actor and he'll definitely get more shows. That Winona Ryder, she's going places. <laughs> she could be in her own movie. A lot of potential. <laughs> yes. Uh, all right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Jason Blum. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck and I want to thank you. We'll see you on Friday. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.